if, if you figure out what you are uniquely qualified to do, passionate about doing, and find the, the place where your ability and your passion intersect with the business need, that is the holy grail that any person in any company is looking for, whether they know it or not. Welcome to another episode of the Work Life Hub podcast. Each week, we bring you an inspiring guest to help you discover the new world of work and learn how your organization can reach its full potential. Thank you for tuning in and spending some time with us today. To find out more about the Work Life Hub, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to the listeners of the Work Life Podcast. This is your host, Agnes, and today it's my great pleasure welcoming Mike Ronglin, who's joining me from Chicago. Hi, Mike. Hi, Agnes. How are you doing? Great. So I'm so happy you're on the podcast and we're here now to talk about your new book, which is called This Is Now Your Company, which is on Amazon. And it's it's a really new book just out there. And it's uh, looking at different aspects that you have picked up in your during your career, also working for different tech companies in Silicon Valley. Before you joined Facebook, you were the director of Microsoft Client Services for Intrepid Learning Solutions. You are a management and L&D and HR professional. And before we go more into your experience working in this very special and very, very interesting space um, and talk about your book, may I ask you, Mike, to tell listeners a little bit about yourself, about your passion, what gets you up in the morning? Yeah, so like you said, I I just wrote this book and I was coming off of about six and a half years um, working at Facebook. And one of the things that has been consistent throughout my career is working in the learning and development space. And one of the things that became really interesting about that work at Facebook was in every other company I'd worked for, uh, you know, the companies tended to be really big already. And you know, when I left Microsoft, as you mentioned, I was a consultant at Microsoft for about five years. And they had, I'd guess, around 100, 105,000 employees. And I went to Facebook where they had 1,700. And I really wanted to see if it was if it was possible, you know, with a really good group of people to build a company the way that I'd always wanted companies. And, and I think lots of my peers had wanted companies to function. I wondered if we could build it from the ground up using some of the skills that uh, I eventually ended up writing about in the book. So in terms of being passionate about, I'm passionate about a lot of things, but I think the most uh, important ones are the ones that I talked about in the book, Uh, being an owner of your career and of the culture of the organizations that you work for, you know, being clear about who you were, what your identity was and trying to be you know, that person 24 hours a day, instead of being one version of yourself at work and one version of yourself everywhere else. And really just, I think that one of the things that inspired me to write the book was the number of people that would come to visit Facebook and in the scope of a, of a meeting coming to talk about their businesses, they really latched on to wanting to talk about Facebook's culture. Because I think one of the things about Lots of tech companies, but Facebook's in particular, was that the culture was such an important part of, of what the company was and, and what attracted people to want to come work there. So I decided to write a book about a lot of the things that I think we did really well and that other companies and other people uh, could do themselves. 
Now, you mentioned Microsoft, Facebook. Um, these are really iconic tech companies that you know most of our listeners use on a daily basis. And we, of course, hear about them in the media and, you know, their ups and downs and, and, the, and the products. And, but I wonder, when somebody goes to work at one of these iconic tech companies, is it easy to get lost to, is it, you know, how, how is it not to get lost? Because I get, I think you, from my totally naive point of view, but do you get sucked in? Is it, is it difficult to to maintain your sense of self in this very, very strong identity group? Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that we talk about, um, or that I should say I talked about in the, the many years that I was doing orientation, because orientation is one of those events that has a disproportionate impact on how people see themselves in relation to the company. And I think what we, what we told people on their first couple of days and then their first several weeks was, you know, you're joining a company that's filled with thousands. At the beginning, it was hundreds, a couple thousand people. And towards the end, it was, you know, tens of thousands of people. But that we really just wanted people to be themselves. We didn't want them to, you know, kind of adopt an identity or adopt a specific way of doing things. Uh, we really wanted them to contribute authentically. And it's it's a huge challenge. Most most of the time, whether people are asked to do it or not, one of the first chapters I write about in the book is is one about something I call organizational Stockholm syndrome, which is basically, you know, I've, I've always done these things. I don't necessarily know why I did them. I didn't even like the behaviors in my old company, but that's how I got used to doing them. And so when I'd come to the new company, uh, I would kind of do those things by default, even though I didn't necessarily want to. And... I think what we really tried to impress on people on their first day was you'll get a sense very quickly of how we get things done. And we want you to add to that. We want you to be yourself in the process and to really just be open to discussing things along the way. I think one of the things that makes companies suffer is that people come in from the outside and assume that there's an absolute right and wrong way to get things done and that it's their job to just figure what those right and wrong ways are. And I think what many tech companies, not just Facebook or Microsoft, but I think many tech companies, if you're trying to be innovative and if you're constantly trying to raise your bar, that also means not just what you're accomplishing it, uh, but how you're accomplishing it. And that is what culture is, just the sum total of how everybody contributes to get things done. Um, I think this is really, really interesting. and. And I really appreciate that you help, you know you opened such a, a door or a window uh, on the on this <laughs> on this fascinating uh, uh, subject. And you know you you speak a little bit in your book also about this uh, question of identities, multiple identities, bringing your whole selves to work, which is fundamental to what we believe in. Um, you know, for people to be able to bring their whole selves to work. Um, there have been a lot of um, articles in the media about Silicon Valley having a bit of a diversity issue. That that it's you know sometimes you know articles saying that it becomes a, an echo chamber and and I wonder if this is also something that you have experienced because you know trying to attract very very different people from very different backgrounds, you know are, are they then up to the expectations of such a company 
or is all, or all the talent coming mainly from a couple of universities, a couple of talent pools? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think to a certain extent, there's probably kind of a, a large echo chamber in Silicon Valley in general. And I think it's partially just because there's, you know, so many people working on such similar things across so many different companies um, that it, if, if you're not watching for it, it's certainly possible to create an environment where, you know, you, you kind of reject anything that isn't, you know, predetermined to fit a mold. I think one of the things that we, that I had the chance to work on while I was there that kind of melds the topic of um, uh, identity and diversity we built a class on unconscious bias. And uh, one of the reasons to do that was, you know, if diversity is representation, then inclusion is leveraging that representation. So one of the things that, that we really wanted to work on was not only increasing the type of diversity that we had in the company, but making sure that once those people were there, uh, that they were able to be themselves and be successful and contribute in ways that were authentic. And the interesting thing is, from an authenticity perspective, I think everybody struggles with it. I think even if you look at people that are in the, quote, majority group, there's still a significant uh, unspoken pressure in any cultural group to have people behave in a certain way that's familiar. And one of the things that we, again, would tell people, not even just in orientation, but in the interview process, we really do want you to be yourself and whatever that means. But at the same time, and I wrote about this in that chapter on multiple identities, it doesn't mean that nobody's ever gonna ask you, hey, why do you dress that way? Or hey, why do you behave this way? Um, because if it's significantly different than what people are used to, you know, our brains are going to notice it and it's going to stand out and we're going to kind of raise an eyebrow. But what we tried to do was create an, an environment where that, yeah, you could behave in different ways and you could, you know, dress differently or act differently or make decisions differently. And that, but the only, the only thing that we wanted you to face if you did so, was, you know, having an opportunity for people to ask you, why did you do that that way? Or why do you think that way? Or why do you believe that way? And then have a meaningful discussion about it. Um, And I think, you know, diversity and inclusion is such a huge beast of a topic in and of itself. But I think when, when, when you bring that many people together, Facebook doubled in size every year that I was there. So when you're bringing that, yeah, when you're bringing that many people, we went from 1,700 when I started to about 25,000 when I left. When you're bringing that many people together and you're expanding around the globe and you're doing all of this stuff and it's happening that quickly, you have to also give yourself room to either make mistakes or move a little bit too quickly and then get feedback and then slow down, get to know each other better, figure out better ways to get things done and then speed up again. So it's a, it's just a constant big experiment in the valley in every sense. <laughs> yes, I, I went once to a conference where um, the uh, HR director, I'm sure that's not what his title was, but I forgot, of Airbnb was explaining about their recruitment process and how they recruited not for skills, but for, for culture or skills and culture. And um, it was also very fascinating to listen to um, because we, we here believe really, I think what you're also telling listeners is the fact to break this mold of the ideal worker, 
this this kind of uniform, this uh, artificial persona that we create when we go to work. And and it's very interesting to listen to you talk about you know the onboarding process because everybody wants to make a good impression. So we do this to get the job and also in the beginning when we're on the new job. So we try to fit in, we try to belong, we try to be appreciated. So it's quite difficult, I think, in any sector and in any new job. I mean, you may just want to, you know, start working in a supermarket or in a hospital or, you know, that, that you put on this kind of naturally your best self. But how to have that then this kind of authentic self that's for me is such a fascinating discussion. Yeah, and it's the interesting thing that because you know, I've been one of those people. I think my whole career, if you asked any of my coworkers at any of my previous companies, did you you know get a sense of who Mike was and what kind of a person he was? And I hope that they would all say yes. It's just never been in my approach to work to try and be one person at work and one person at home. It's just too much mental energy. And one of the things that I would tell people when they were, you know, visiting executives that were coming, either coming to Facebook or if I was speaking at conferences like the one you just talked about, if you if you don't want to encourage people and and allow them to be themselves at work because it's just the right thing to do, there's also a significant business ROI to it. The amount of time and energy that people who aren't being themselves on any given day spend, you know, mentally context switching, like, oh, there's going to be an executive in this meeting. So I'm going to be this version of myself in that meeting. And then in that other meeting with a client, since they're external, I'm going to be this version of myself. And then in a meeting with my direct reports, I'm going to be, it's just so many different versions of who you are. And when we're tired and when we're not thinking about it or, when we just don't care to invest the energy, we let little glimpses of those other versions show <laughs> in the wrong meeting. Like, oh no, I'm being I'm being client version of myself with my CEO, or I'm being CEO version of myself with my direct reports. And eventually people are going to see, and that's when people start talking behind your back about like, who is this person? Um, and the, the amount of mental energy that people invest into the different versions of themselves, our hypothesis and what I talked about in orientation at Facebook was instead of spending that really precious mental energy on trying to figure out which version of yourself to be, spend that precious mental energy on solving real problems and the reputation that you will build for being able to do that will far exceed any value you might think you're getting from being you know, three or four or five different versions of yourself at work. It's just too confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And and one other issue that I think is, is quite related to this is the idea of a, a person job fit, that not everybody is as self-aware to go for jobs that really suit them. We, we all have this backstory of why we went through that education, why we're going for that jobs? Is it our parents? Is it our families? Is it, you know, do we, so that's, I think, another one of these issues. When we go and work with workplaces, I think at any given time, there is, you know, 30, 20 to 30% of people who just are, are unhappy there because that's not what, where their heart is. So they put on a persona because, you know, that's really not what they want to do. Right. Well, this is, I love that you brought this up because this is one of the reasons why I asked Marcus Buckingham to write the foreword 
for my book. Marcus is, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with his work. He wrote the, you know, First Break All the Rules back in the late 90s, which was all about, you know, figuring out what your strengths were and finding out how to volunteer them in ways that were useful to other people, because that's where success lies. And that was a key component of how we developed people at Facebook and in, not in a secret way. I think one of the things that I love about Facebook is that we've always been really transparent about the stuff that we were doing uh, because we really do want, I want every person and every company to feel like they have their best job and that they are doing their best work, whether it's at Facebook or McDonald's or they work you know, in trash collection or in a coffee shop or an airline pilot. Like the, the unifying theme of this book was if you can figure out you know, in addition to how to not have multiple identities and manage your manager and all of those other things, but if you can really first and foremost hone in on why you are on this planet, then what you said earlier uh, when we were talking about culture, about fitting in, I don't actually want people to fit in. I want them to stand out. And Mark, Marcus actually wrote an entire book and uh, an assessment called Stand Out because he really, and, and I believe this wholeheartedly as well, if, if you figure out what you are uniquely qualified to do, passionate about doing, and find the, the place where your ability and your passion intersect with a business need, that is the holy grail that any person in any company is looking for, whether they know it or not. And so to be intentional about that is one of the key principles of, of this book, but certainly of all of Marcus's work, which is why I just adore working with him. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the workplaces that we've assessed and, and helped grow uh, quite recently, they had one rule where the staff meeting was facilitated always by a different person every week. And some people love it and they thrive in managing time, managing meetings, getting, you know, output. And some people dread it and others, you know, outright hate it. And And one of our recommendations was, well, why do you do this? You know, why do you not let people to play to their strengths? And why do you force people to do something they don't like? You know, just ask those two people to facilitate the meetings alternately or however they want um, or together, whatever. But I think that there are so many different rules and structures and systems that are still blockages to what you know, you and, and Marcus and others are talking about this kind of letting people just be, as you say, their unique selves and figure out how to help contribute to to the growth and, and the evolution of their organization. It's so true. And one of the things that I think drives that is we always, and I, I write about this in, in several different parts in the book where people use the extreme worst example as a reason why they don't do something, right? So what you were just describing, well, if, you know, if we let these two people decide that, you know, they, we, they really want to pursue this because they're passionate about it, then, you know, people are going to want to sing because they're passionate about singing or they're going to want to, and it's such a ridiculous counter to the argument that you should really try and focus and hone people in on what they're passionate about. I, I spoke at a conference a few weeks ago with the people from Marcus's company, and, and we were talking to talent professionals about building a strengths-based culture. And it's one of the things that I am really passionate about from the recruiting process through the interview process through the entire tenure of the person at the company 
that if you, instead of focusing on really super detailed job descriptions with 800 bullet points of things that the person has to be able to do, if you can ask yourself, if I hired somebody into this role and every day of their job was one of their best days at work, what would that person look like? Instead of saying, what does the job description look like? What is the person who is going to thrive in this role look like? And then not judge it. Because the other thing that we do, in addition to being afraid of the worst case example of somebody wanting to pursue strengths that have no business value, the other thing that we tend to do is worry too much about whether we ourselves find that work strengthening, right? So the meeting facilitation, for example, I really don't enjoy doing that work at all. So having that be on my to-do list would be a totally bad thing. There's lots of things that I don't like finance stuff. I don't like doing spreadsheets, which is fine. They, those things still need to get done. So my job as a manager then is to say, okay, well, I need to find somebody that's probably going to seem like a weirdo to me <laughs> who really loves spreadsheets or really loves meeting facilitation because it's an important contribution to the team. And then I need to find that person and give them as many opportunities to do that as I can. And it's just the reason that Marcus's first book, for example, was called First Break All the Rules is that the rule book would tell you, who cares if they like it, just find somebody that can do it really well and make them do it until they retire. And one of the first rules that Marcus talked about that that I think we really tried to implement at Facebook was if the first rule to break is to stop asking people to do things that weaken them, uh, especially if it's the majority of the job, we all have to do expense reports and write our reviews and stuff that we don't necessarily love. But if the majority of the job focuses on strengths, uh, you really win. And it's up to everybody to, you know, the individual has to be the one to identify what their strengths are, which is harder than it sounds. And the managers need to be the ones creating the environment where they can volunteer them. But that partnership is one of the other chapters I read about in the book that I think is so valuable. Absolutely. So my takeaway from your answer was don't be afraid to hire weirdos. <laughs> nope. <laughs> hire all the weirdos you can and embrace them because... <laughs> That weirdness, especially if it's work that you don't understand or you yourself are not passionate about, you're never going to be able to do the job that they're going to be able to do. Um, so yes, hire great weirdos and manage them well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what, one thing that I picked up on what you just said before was also this issue of not treating employees like children. I always talk about this. You know, it comes out in almost all the, all the all the episodes because this this one size fits all and rule books and and you know these kind of what people may think are stupid rules are are, are you know from a parent to child type of dynamic uh, because because otherwise you would be lazy or what you said otherwise you would sing otherwise you would mess up and and I think that I really hope that what if this if this new world of work is about something, then it's about recognizing that people are adults and they're here to do a great work. Nobody wants to not do a great work. So remove all the blocks that you know that and you know that stop them from it. For sure. And this is such a fundamental part of the book because one of the things that I found over and over and over again is that the biggest block is not the company, it's not the manager, it's the individual, him or herself. And if you, you know, one of the things that pops up in almost every class that I've ever facilitated on any topic, it, the first 
major pushback you will get is people saying, well, does, does the company do this really well? Does my manager, does his manager, her manager do this really well? And our, our initial reaction is to deflect and give away all of our influence to other people uh, because we tell ourselves that it's going to be impossible for one person to really drive. And you don't have to drive a strengths-based culture for the entire company just to pursue yours. Um, you don't have to drive a culture where everybody does things exactly the way that you do in order for you to be able to do things in a unique and compelling way. What what the what the book really encourages people to do is to say every behavior, every decision, every thought, every action combined is what a company's culture is. So at the end of the day, what I wish people would focus on more instead of worrying about compliance, right, the rule book, what I, what I would really prefer people to worry about is impact, right? So are the things that I'm doing making this place better than when I got here or are the things that I'm saying and doing making the place worse? And I think if people focus on utility and impact more than compliance and regulation, I think those companies just will naturally perform better in the long term. It's not always going to be easy or painless, but I think ultimately it's worth it. Yeah, probably harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so before we go to our last question, Mike, may I ask you to share with listeners where they can find the book, where they can learn more about your work, where they can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, the book is pretty much everywhere. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. Uh, you can get it on Audible, the audiobook which was a really, <laughs> it's a weird thing to read your own book out loud for like six hours, but there's an audiobook on Amazon and Audible on iTunes. Uh, there's a Kindle version, a Nook version on Barnes and pretty much anywhere you buy a book, you can find it. Um, and then, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook. I actually post a lot more on Facebook than LinkedIn because again, worked at Facebook for a long time. And I think, I, I really enjoy LinkedIn as a product, but I find that when I post on Facebook, I get a lot more traction, a lot more engagement. And of course, there's a group on Facebook for people that read the book um, called This Is Now Your Group. So if people read the book and they want to come in and join the conversation about the stuff that we talk about in the book, then they can find that on Facebook. Well, thank you for that. And coming to the last question, which is always the same, if I could ask you, Mike, to give one advice to a CEO based on everything you've learned, everything you compacted in the book, what would be your key advice? So the, the, the biggest piece of advice that I've given any CEO or CMO or CHRO or any of those C-level executives is to create a, a culture in which everybody acknowledges their ownership role. I think, especially from a cultural perspective, clients that I'll work with now that I've left Facebook and started my own business, I think the natural inclination, both from the C-level executive and from all of the employees, is that if they're bringing me in to influence a change in their culture, everybody naturally, including the C-level executives, looks to themselves first, and in, in some cases exclusively. And a small group of executives in one location, especially if the company is a larger one, they cannot create a culture because they're not the ones, you know, they're, they're far outnumbered. If there's 10 people on the C-level team and there's 10,000 employees, 
they erroneously focus their energy on culture change at the 10 C-level executives and forget that the other 9,000 people are the ones that are really going to make culture change happen. So I think one of the things that we did at Facebook really well that, again, wasn't a secret, was that we expected uh, that everybody was going to own their role, that nothing at the company was somebody else's problem to fix, and that to, to steal another quote from an author, Joseph Grenny, who was one of the authors of Crucial Conversations, uh, instilled in me years ago, that every company reinvents its culture every day by the decisions they make, the ways that they get things done. And if you don't like the way that your culture is today, make different decisions tomorrow. And I think that can certainly start at the sea level, but everybody has to own it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for you know, sharing your valuable insight. It was great having you on the podcast and I wish you really the best of success with your book and, and your work. Thank you so much.